Well, good morning, Bethel. Uh, let us pray as we come to God's word together today. Gracious, merciful, holy God, holy, holy, holy are you. The whole earth is full of your glory. We've been singing and praising you for who you are, and we're coming to your word now with eager hearts to hear. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And so may the words of my mouth and the reflections, meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. When you open this book, maybe it's to start your day at home alone, what do you expect to happen? When you read these pages with your family, to your kids at night or during your family devotions, what are you praying will transpire? When, when you gather with your small group and you, you open up this together with brothers and sisters and you, you read it and you study it and you dialogue about it, what are you hoping for? Or, or when you come together on a Sunday morning like this and we unite as a church family to worship and, and we open this book and hear God's word preached as in a sermon, when you look into this book, what are you anticipating? What are you anticipating? This Easter, we are doing a teaching series all about the resurrected Jesus. And each week, we're looking at different encounters that different people had with the resurrected Jesus, the, the Jesus who died, was buried, and who was alive, raised to life. And it's going to See here this morning as we look into God's Word, as we consider an encounter that a couple guys had on a road as they walked, we're going, we're going to see and learn about what we should expect, what we should pray for, what we should hope, what we should look for as we open this book, as we open the book that God wrote and gave to us. And so turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. Our text that we're looking at this morning together begins in verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It says that same day, that's the that's the day of Easter Sunday that we would now call Easter Sunday. These two disciples are heading presumably home to their homes in a town called Emmaus. It's not a crazy far journey from Jerusalem, but we're probably talking, if you're doing it by, you know, by feet, you're probably talking about a two and a half to three hour walk from Jerusalem to get home to Emmaus. They've been in Jerusalem, presumably, with Jesus. They, they were there around when he was arrested and killed. Maybe these guys had seen Jesus and been bystanders watching from a distance when he was hung on the cross, aware of how he was killed there, buried in the ground. Sabbath day came, and so they couldn't walk home on the Sabbath day, and they are now heading back to Emmaus. They are walking and they are talking 
together. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And a, and a ton had gone on over the last week, the last couple days, even that very day there, which we call Easter morning. And have you ever had one of those, you know, days, weeks, little bit of a season where it just leaves you like reeling in every single different direction. I mean, there's so much happens that it's just like wave after wave after wave. It leaves you like lying on your back, not knowing which way is up from down and your head is just spinning. That's these guys here at this very moment. They, they are just like turned up from down, left from right, head over heels, dizzy, unsure of what to make of all that's going on, confused, afraid, worried, anxious, excited, anticipating, just all of these things. It's just a dizzying frenzy going on within their heads about all that has happened in just the last couple days. And it says in verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, all that had gone on the last few days, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. The disciples are walking and talking about Jesus and then Jesus shows up, but they were blind. They were blind. It's a rather peculiar couple of verses we have here, isn't it? Out of nowhere, <laughs> they're walking and talking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the alive Jesus, the one who died, buried in the ground, and then raised to life, is now walking with them. Not weak, stumbling, not blood dripping or, you know, the marks in his forehead with the scars from the, the blood where the, it's just scabbed over from the thorn crown, not, not limping from the lashing that he got on his back. And I mean, some would try to suggest that, you know, they, they don't believe that Jesus really rose in, from the dead. And so, you know, it was just, uh, they just looked like he was dead. They just thought he had died. And I mean, if just a couple of days later, the guy thought he had died, he would not just be up walking right here with them, unaware that this guy even has a limp, would he? He just starts walking along with them. Jesus joins them right on this road to Emmaus. But they couldn't see him. They couldn't see him. It says they were kept from recognizing him. I mean, they could see him, but they couldn't see him. He, he, was, he was there in front of them, but they, they didn't recognize him. It was like there were these supernatural blinders over their eyes holding them back from seeing. And maybe, maybe that sounds kind of strange. Maybe that sounds kind of confusing. What does that mean? How, how could that be? How could he be walking with them and yet they don't see? How could he be right there with them and yet they don't recognize him? It might sound strange, but I actually don't really think it's that strange or surreal at all. I think we actually know almost exactly what this is like. We read over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. These disciples, these two that are walking along the road here, they couldn't see Jesus even though he was right in front of them. And today, the exact same thing 
continues to be going on. I, I mean, if we just think about this whole holiday that we are preparing to celebrate called Easter here, just, just let it sink in. According to, I did a little research, according to an organization called the National Retail Foundation, it's based out of the U.S., they, they estimate how much money is going to be spent in the next few weeks here to prepare and celebrate Easter. Do you have a guess how much is going to be spent in the United States to celebrate Easter? They estimate $19.5 billion is going to be spent right around now to celebrate Easter by individuals. That averages to $156 per person spent on Easter. When you think about, for example, you get a new outfit for Easter, or you buy chocolate and candies for Easter, you buy flowers, you buy decorations for your house, you have a nice big meal together, or whatever it is, $19 billion tells me this is like right in front of every single one of us, isn't it? I mean, every store you go into, everywhere you walk, everywhere you turn, it's all around us. Or, or a couple weeks ago, my, my kids go to a public school here in the area, okay? And a couple weeks ago, it was uh, Shrove Tuesday, Pancake Tuesday. They're, they're at the public school in class, and uh, the, their teacher says, all right, we're going we're gonna to celebrate Pancake Tuesday today. And so they have together there Shrove Tuesday. And, and do, do you know, I don't know if you know kind of the backstory, if you've come from a tradition that might have this, but the whole point of Shrove Tuesday is to get rid of all of the ingredients that you are going to give up the next day and for the next 40 days when you enter into Lent, which is the countdown of sacrifice heading towards the celebration of Easter. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I got no problems or qualms with my kids celebrating Shrove Tuesday in their class, but I cannot miss the irony of the fact that even in the classes that seem to be saying, hey, we got to be so secular, woven right into the very DNA, right in front of us, is saying, hey, let's celebrate the day that's the day before we start to count down towards Easter. Or let's just point out, for example, the fact that in a couple short days, a couple weeks, we're going to have a celebration as a whole country, a national holiday, where everyone, everywhere, the entire country will shut down for a day and have a holiday, a statutory, mandatory holiday for Good Friday, which is the day to remember Jesus dying. I mean, how much more right in front of our faces can this whole thing get? And yet, we are blinded. How much more in front of our faces can Jesus get in schools, in stores, in our own statutory holidays? He's right there, and yet, we don't see. It's as if, kind of like verse 16, many today are kept from recognizing him too. They see, but they don't see, because there are spiritual blinders, just like these two walking on the road. We look back at our text, verse 17, and you, you simply cannot miss the irony that's about to just burst out of the text in these next couple of verses. Verse 17 
He asked them, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? He comes up beside them and, and asks them as they're talking, what are you discussing? What are you talking about? And they stood still, their faces downcast. They, they were walking and talking, but now all of a sudden they come to a screeching halt. The question literally brings them to a standstill. These two disciples are stopped in their tracks, in their blindness. And, and they're like, you don't, you don't know? How do you, how do you not know? What, what's, what's wrong with you to not know? And the irony, of course, to this is, first of all, that Jesus knows everything. Jesus is the resurrected one who is here standing with them and the God of all the universe. If anybody knows, it's Jesus that knows. He's not asking this question because he's uninformed. Oh, he's got a very different reason for asking this question. He knows exactly what's going on. Verse 18, one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only visitor? Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened in these days? Where have you been? How do you not know? And once again, the irony to this is just like jumping off the page because at this moment, if I were Jesus, I would say something like, he doesn't say this, but I would say something like, oh, you think I'm a visitor from a far off land? Well, actually, Interestingly enough, I actually am a visitor from a really far off land. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it before, but I'm from this place that's called uh, heaven. Ever heard of it before? But uh, how do you not know? Where are you from? Are you visiting from a far off land? Yeah, actually, he kind of is. What things, though? Jesus doesn't say any of that, right? He says, well, what things have happened in these last days? And he asked, and then Cleopas responds about Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus just kind of seems to like stare at him. And so bless his heart, this dear Cleopas decides to begin to preach a sermon to Jesus about Jesus. Verse 19 continues, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. And in addition, some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him, they, they, didn't, they didn't see Jesus there. And this whole thing is just oozing with irony. These guys are like face down, despondent, stopped in their tracks, heads spinning every which way, explaining all that has gone on about Jesus to Jesus. Jesus, it says in verse 31, um, I need to do a cut there. I'm going to go I'm going to go back to the end of that scripture that I just read. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Him they did not see. This whole thing is just oozing with irony because here they are with Jesus, telling Jesus about Jesus. And, and what is even more ironic to all of this is that the coin has not dropped for them because everything Cleopas just said is actually exactly what Jesus said just a couple weeks earlier. I mean, look at the Gospel of Luke a couple chapters earlier in chapter 18. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. What Cleopas says is exactly what Jesus said. What Cleopas is recounting is exactly what Jesus had said a few weeks earlier. This is what's going to happen. And how easy it is to sit here and be like, what is wrong with you? How did you not see? How could you be so foolish? That's what wants to come out of my mind and heart and lips. And then the Lord takes a giant two by four right across the side of my head and is like, Alan, <laughs> don't you remember your own story? Oh, how quickly we can be prone to look down and say, what's wrong with you? How could you not see to dear brothers and sisters that we read in the pages here and miss our own stories, can't we? I mean, for me personally, I was, I was raised in the church. I, I was actually raised, my dad was a pastor. My parents loved Jesus. I, I did the math. I, I figure before I you know, became an adult, I had heard at least a thousand sermons. At least a thousand sermons. I, I grew up and was raised memorizing the Bible, singing the songs, praying the prayers, going to church. If someone had asked me at any point in that whole time, you know, are you a Christian? I would have said, well, obviously, of course I am. This is what I grew up in. My dad's a pastor. I'm around church all the time. But here's the thing, friends. I was blind. I was blind and I didn't even know I was blind. That's how blind I was. For the first 17 years of my life, I was blind. I, I was around all of it. I heard all of it. I could do the speak of all the Christian thing. And I even thought I knew, but I didn't know. I couldn't see. And I didn't even know I couldn't see. In fact, one of the turning points in my life was when I was 17, I went on this school extended trip, grad trip. And I met this girl on the trip, a girl who I thought was really cute. And I found out that she was actually a Christian and her dad was a pastor. And I thought, ooh, perfect, here's my in. And so I said to her, you know, you know the craziest thing, I'm actually a Christian and my dad's a pastor. And then she looked right back at me. 
and I will never forget it. She looked right back at me and said, if you're really a Christian, then why are you living like this? I'd never had anyone call me on it. She heard the profession from my lips, but she could see how I was living with all the friends around me. And she called me out on it. And that question haunted me, like haunted me. It, this more than 22 years ago that that happened. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. It sent me reeling. I had no idea what to do with this question until finally, it was a number of weeks later that I ended up at this youth retreat and this guy got up on the stage and he said really simply, you need to hear this, you need to hear this. Christianity at its core is not just about religion or what you grew up in. It's about a relationship with Jesus and you need to give your life to Jesus. And at that moment, all of a sudden, I was like, wow, I have been blind and I didn't even know it. I thought I knew, but I didn't know. No, I thought I saw, but I couldn't see. And in that moment, God broke into my life. It's so easy to look down on the Cleopas's of the Bible, these two here, and think, what's wrong with you? But this is all of our stories. Maybe right now you still are blinders over your eyes. Or maybe don't forget that there was a day when that was you too. Look back with me in our Bibles here. The preaching turns. It turns from dear brother Cleopas back to Jesus. Jesus takes the mic. He said to them, How foolish are you? How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter, then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he exclaimed to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. From Moses all the way to Malachi. On that dirt path, walking the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened the book, you could say. He opened the Word of God and he explained what the Bible actually said. And we have no idea exactly what Jesus pointed to, exactly what Jesus said when he preached the sermon. Oh, how I would love to know. But God in his infinite wisdom has decided not to tell us. But I have to wonder if that sermon as they walked on that dirt road where Jesus went from Moses to Malachi, I have to wonder if he didn't begin, for example, with a text like right in the very beginning. First book of the Bible, first couple individuals in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. I wonder, did Jesus start with this? Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. See, right from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, who sinned because of the temptation of that serpent, God made a promise. God made a promise to that serpent that there's going to come a day where I will send one, from this line of Eve, who is going to crush 
your head, Satan. And you know, you know who that was, right? Or did Jesus point out a few years later into the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, did did Jesus go to the father of our faith, Abraham, where it says, then the word of the Lord came to him. God says, this man will not be your heir, Abraham, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said to him, look at the heavens and count the stars, and indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. God made a promise to the father of our faith, to Abraham, and said, even though you are old in age, I will give you a son and your son will go on to have offspring that are as numerous as the stars of the sky and will bless the nations. And you know who that was pointing ahead to, don't you? Or did Jesus reference in Deuteronomy when the Holy Spirit led Moses to say, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You have to listen to him. Or do you you remember 2 Samuel, when God spoke to King David in chapter 7? When your days are over and and you rest with your fathers, David, God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Don't don't you realize that the prophet, who the prophet is going to be that Moses spoke about. Don't you see who the king in the lineage of David was going to be? Don't you see the king who would rule forever? A king who would be a son of who? A son of God? And it gets even more specific. I can't help but wonder if Jesus said, didn't didn't you clue in to what God told you about the the son of his who would be the snake-crushing prophet and king who would rule forever. Didn't you remember where he's going to come from? I mean, God wrote it down in the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphram, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So so there's going to come a one who's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. He's going to be some kind of eternal ancient one. God told you this a long time ago. He wrote it down in the book. And he wrote down when he would come. Did, did, you, did you not remember? Did you not realize? Did you not read carefully enough to see that God said, when this snake-crushing prophet and king, who's the son of God, who would be born in Bethlehem, when he would come? I mean, it says in Daniel chapter 9, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild the Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. But in times of trouble, after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, if we do a little bit of math here, Daniel, when he wrote this 
letter. He was in exile in Babylon, and, and best figure we can best we can figure from historical, he's probably around 480, 483 BC. And and there's no no temple at that point in Jerusalem because they've gone into exile and Jerusalem's been destroyed. And and it says there there's going to be these 69 periods of seven. Well, let's just say. Let's do a little like experiment here. What if those sevens are seven years? And we do our math, and did you know that Artaxerxes commissions Nehemiah to start rebuilding the temple in 444 BC? Which if you do the math of 69 sevens, do you know where that brings us to to say that the, the anointed one, the ruler who is going to come to Jerusalem will come by the year 33 AD? And Isaiah says, well, this one is going to be born of a virgin. It's going to be a miraculous birth, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Or, or have you not ever clued into the fact that this annual practice that you as Jews do every single year where you remember back from Exodus the Passover and the lamb who's going to be sacrificed, have you never realized that that just might be pointing ahead to a perfect spotless lamb who might give up his life as a perfect Passover lamb for you, kind of like the guy in Psalm 22 where it describes him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the midst of this psalm where the Messiah has a whole bunch of people surrounding him, crying out, mocking, assaulting, ridiculing him, criticizing and trying to kill him. Or do you remember, I wonder if Jesus said, where it says in Zechariah chapter 11 that the Messiah would be betrayed by someone for 30 pieces of silver. Does this ring any bells? Is this connecting any dots here? Or how about how at the end of that Psalm 22, where Jesus, where the Messiah cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How it says that they're going to divide my garments among them and cast my lots for clothing. Are you connecting the dots yet? Or what about when the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, for he was cut off from the land of the living, killed. Why? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, buried amongst the rich in a rich man's grave, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I don't know exactly what Jesus said on that road, exactly what Old Testament promises he pointed to, but I have to wonder if he's not identifying at least some of these promises about the snake crushing priest and prophet and king who's going to rule forever, who is of ancient of days, who was born in a place called Bethlehem of a family from David, who was born at a particular time, who was killed in a particular way, who lived a particular life, who had people gambling over his clothes in a particular way. And do not miss this final one from Isaiah 53 verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Death will not rule over him. This is what God, this is just a few of the things that God has promised in 
his book years before. And maybe, just maybe, I know I have not done even remotely close to justice to what Jesus would have said, but maybe, just maybe, some of these things are what Jesus began to unpack as they walked that road with those two disciples. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. He pretends. He's like, i got to keep going on to this next place. And there, they urged him strongly, it says in verse 29. That's like they, they beg, they plead. They're like, please, come, don't go away. Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. They get into the home of one of these two disciples. They sit down for dinner. And when he had given thanks... He's at the table. He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he gave it to them. They urged him to stay. They yearned to be with him. But it was not until this moment where he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it that all of a sudden the blinders came off. All of a sudden in that very moment where Jesus broke the bread and blessed it just as he had done to feed 5,000 and 4,000 with a few pieces of bread and some fish, just as he had done on that last night with his disciples at the Last Supper and did, did that practice, which we now carry on in remembering Jesus around the communion table. It was at that moment when Jesus broke the bread and then just as quickly as he did it, their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? We gather today to prepare our hearts for Easter. We unite in worship. We we sing songs. We look into God's word, the the book that God wrote, but this passage is not just about today. It's, it's relevant for us here today, but it's about every day. Every day that we would come to open this book and read it on our own as we start our mornings. Every day that we would open the pages of this book with our family and read it together in our family times of worship. Every time we would gather together with brothers and sisters in small group or with friends and open this book to study it and discuss it. Every single week when we unite together to worship God and open this word and hear it proclaimed and learn from it. And here's the takeaway for us today, dear friends. Here's the application for each and every one of us. Here's the prayer that I want to invite each and every one of us to pray every single time we open this book. It is this. We need God to open our eyes as we open his word to see the resurrected Jesus. That's the point of this book. Every time we come to it, that's the heart behind it. Every time we read it ourselves, every time we unite together to hear from it, oh God, would you open our eyes as we open your word that we might see the resurrected living Jesus. May God be gracious to allow us to do just that.